House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Okay, you are back in the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren, and Mike Brown is co-hosting here. Hello. <laughs> so now we are we are at the interview part of the the show, and uh, uh, we have. Uh, chosen a great superstar for you today he's written a, a few books you might have heard about um his, his name is nate hendley thank you for being here nate well thank you for having me and <laughs> for the fine compliments <laughs> that's what that's what we're about so <laughs> good to hear yeah well you know uh, until you're off the show then we'll talk about you ah, okay now um I, I see a lot of your books um were Bonnie and Clyde and 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 things and into that nature, you know, um, mm -hmm, Al Capone mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, the Mafia. How did you get into writing, first of all? Well, uh, way back when I, um, even as a child, I just loved to write, and I would sort of started handwriting these very long stories, and I was, you know, just about ten or twelve in grade eight. We had a teacher who um, we had a class devoted to creative writing, and I would continue doing these long handwritten stories, usually, you know, kind of a James Bond type plots involving, you know, a desperate group of guys committing some sort of, you know, you know, assassination or something, mercenaries or terrorists or police or something. He would actually review them, and that sort of got me thinking that, you know, wow, maybe I can actually do this. Maybe I can actually write. So I kept that up and, uh, you know, following along through into university, I started doing more journalism uh, rather than creative writing and eventually went, out, went on to journalism school, started working for various publications, still had in the back of my mind that I wanted to write a book. That was sort of something that I had, a goal I had set even as a kid, to write a book. Initially, I thought it would be a novel, but... Uh, then the opportunity presented itself to write a nonfiction book. Um, I belong to a writing group called the Professional Writers Association of Canada. And on their email listserv, they put out a notice that there was this company from Alberta, out west in Canada, called Altitude Publishing. They were looking for uh, sort of punchy nonfiction Canadian stories, sort of, you know, short, sort of to the point and they were looking for Toronto and Ontario stories. At that time, this notorious Toronto bank robber named Edwin Alonzo Boyd had just died. He had robbed banks in Toronto in the 50s. So I thought, no, oh, that might be an interesting topic. And I pitched them, and they liked it, and they asked me to send a chapter outline, and they liked that. So I got a contract and wrote the book. And after that, I sort of fell into, I became their kind of go-to guy for crime stuff, that the uh, altitude would suggest some topics to me. They'd say, hey, you know, we're doing some books on American gangsters. Would you like to do a book on it? And they'd give me a list of 10 names, you know, Meyer Lansky, Dutch Schultz, Bugsy Siegel, all these people. And I'd say, oh, okay, well, I'll do something on Al Capone. And lo and out of the blue, a company from the States called Greenwood, which is now part of ABC Clio, contacted me and said, well, we've seen your books, and how'd you like to do one for us on Bonnie and Clyde? 
So uh, I kind of went from there, and I, so I kind of fell into this. Uh, I honestly didn't read a lot of true crime when I was uh, in high school and university, and uh, other than the classics in, in Cold Blood and Helter Skelter um, and a few things like that. Um, but I sort of fell into it and discovered I really just loved doing it and uh, that the genre lends itself to a lot of color and historical details and talking about social issues and conditions of a certain era. And um, I want to keep pursuing it as much as I can. Similar, yes, exactly. <laughs> and I don't have one of those uh, late-night um, uh, button, panic button system things that you push to alert people that I've fallen, emergency alert systems. Well, let's start a GoFundMe account for you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. Um, now, do you find this quite a fascination on mafia and, and gangsters and stuff? People seem to mm -hmm, idolize mm -hmm. those characters. Why do you think mm -hmm. that is? Well, I think that uh, part of it is just simply there's this sort of notion that you're going to work, you're going to either an office or a factory or whatever, and you're working nine to five and it's tough and the boss is yelling at you. There's sort of this envy factor that, oh, look at these, you know, criminals. They're just getting away with any, literally getting away with murder and um, they don't have to work. They just sort of sell stolen goods and dope all day and make all sorts of money and hang out and party. Um, the reality is that most uh, gangsters um, live sort of short, violent, brutal lives and don't usually make it till they're make, you know, they usually don't uh, make their 30th birthday or so. But, you know, it's obviously something that people could see and sort of like grudgingly admire. And especially also if um, you're from a poor environment, I mean, these gangsters might be the only successful people that came from your neighborhood everybody else is either a terrible job or isn't working at all and here are these rich guys you know mafios or whatever driving you know big fancy cars and nice suits and have all sorts of jewelry and disposable income um i suppose there's also a bit of wish fulfillment in this notion that uh, you know these gangsters don't have to follow the law you know they can just punch people out and you know um, take what they want and that sort of thing. And that, you know, obviously that strikes a chord and most law-abiding people, whether they want to admit it or not. I've noticed now on this last book you wrote, it's called The Boy on the Bicycle. Mm -hmm. It's a mm -hmm. case of wrongful conviction in Toronto. Um, yes. So are, are you, um, is that what attracted you to this story? Is the wrongful conviction itself or was there something else? Well, the backstory is I had done a previous book about another wrongful conviction uh, in 1959. A 14-year-old boy in small-town Ontario named uh, Stephen Truscott was wrongly convicted of killing a classmate based on just entirely circumstantial evidence, and eventually was released, paroled, and then eventually his conviction was uh, overturned. So I wrote a book about Stephen Truscott, and I get an email from this guy named Ron Moffat, and he said, well, saw your book on Truscott, and guess what? The same thing happened to me. I was 14, wrongly convicted of murder in the 1950s, but this happened in Toronto, 1956. So obviously I did a little research because, you know, as a 
true crime writer, you get emails or calls all the time from people claiming they've got the story of the century and nine times out of 10, they're kooks. Um, I'm sure you you guys can relate. Oh, let me tell you about this great story. You should do this big piece, blow the lid off something. And it's, you know, some, you know, Mickey Mouse scandal about a grain feed store or something. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so it. Uh, I did a little research, discovered that uh, this guy was completely on the level, telling the truth. And what fascinated me was not just the wrongful conviction. And I have to admit, I'd never heard of this guy's case. Like, I live in Toronto. I've been here for over 20 years, and I'd never heard of Ron Moffat or this whole case. Um, and it turns out that it was widely covered in the press, but he was tried as a juvenile whereas Stephen Truscott was tried as an adult. And if you're tried as an adult, your name is in the media in Canada. And if you're tried as a juvenile at the time, your name was kept out of the press. So kind of a blessing at the time, but what it meant was over the years, nobody knew who Ron Moffat was, and they kind of forgot about his case because, you know, it's kind of hard to say, oh, yeah, you remember that case in 1956 with that guy they never named who was kind of wrongly convicted. So that attracted me too, that no one had ever done a full book about this story. Um, It's always, you know, like any writer, you love to sort of, you know, come across a story that no one else has ever told. And the fact it happened in my own city was just, to me, astonishing. You know, I never knew that, you know, something like this could even take place, but it did. So, um, what, what was the, what is the backstory? What's, what's, what sure. happened? <laughs> okay. A little bit of backstory. Okay. So the night of September 15th, 1956, and there's a family called the Millette family. They are visiting a relative in Toronto from, uh, Seeley's Bay, which is a small little town. Their little seven-year-old boy, um, sort of wanders away from their They were visiting their uh, grandmother, and he sort of wandered away from their uh, yard. His older brothers didn't want to take him to the movies, so he was kind of left to his own devices. Little Wayne wanders into the deserted grounds of the Canadian National Exhibition, which is a big fairground, and he encounters a teenage boy on a bicycle. And according to later police accounts, the boy tried to sort of do some sort of, you know, sex games with this little kid. Little Wayne got scared and the teenager subsequently um, killed the child, pressed his face in the dirt. The boy on the bicycle, uh, the teenage boy on the bicycle, rides off and encounters a security guard and makes this kind of weird conversation about, uh, hey, you ever find bodies in the bush? Um, And then he disappears. And so the police, you know, obviously this is a huge shock because Toronto at the time had a reputation of being very dull, but very safe, okay? 1956, there were nine recorded murders in all of Toronto. Wow. And this is a city city with a population of 670,000 people, second biggest city in Canada at the time. So very little crime, and, you know, especially child murders. This is pretty rare. Mm -hmm. So police are kind of obviously under a lot of pressure, and all they know is that the suspect is like a teenage boy Um, who rode a bicycle, which is where the name of my book comes from, through a complicated series of um, uh, 
through a complicated series of events, they put they sort of fingered this uh, 14-year-old boy named Ron Moffat. And Ron attracted suspicion for a few things, that he, um, he got in a fight with his parents shortly after this murder went down, and uh, he sort of ran away from home, so to speak, which basically meant he hid out in, the, in a uh, room in their apartment building and sort of didn't talk to his parents. So his mom phones police, says, oh, my son is missing. Police at the time were searching for runaway kids because they had this theory that the teenage killer would get so upset that they'd run away or something. So they start looking into this, and they realize that this guy who ran away, Ron Moffat, he's roughly the same age as the suspect, and he worked at the Canadian National Exhibition. He had a summer job there, so he'd be familiar with the place. That seems kind of coincidental. So they track him down, pick him up, take him to police station, and then they interrogate him, without a lawyer or a parent present. And, you know, this being the 50s, they don't record it or anything. So we have um, typewritten notes of the interrogation, but we just have to kind of take the police's word for it. Mm -hmm. And according to Ron, they kind of just badgered him and badgered him and badgered him and got this 14-year-old kid who doesn't know very much. These two tough cops are kind of pushing him around and badgering him. Um, they didn't get physical, but he felt that they were, you know, that was in the air. So he gives a false confession. And unfortunately, this does happen, does, excuse me, this does happen fairly frequently, um, especially with juveniles who are being interrogated without a guardian, without a parent. You know, you're 14, you want to get the hell out of there, you don't really know what's going on. So the cops take Ron to the crime scene and they tell the papers, oh yeah, Ron walked us through the crime scene and showed us where he killed the kid. And Ron says, well, no, it was like the police would kind of point to a spot and say, hey, you know, did the murder take place there? And he'd kind of nod his head. So they put Ron in, um, put Ron in jail. And a month later, another kid gets killed. Um, another little boy named Gary Morris. He's approached on the street uh, by a teenage boy on a bicycle. The boy takes uh, Gary to a deserted beach area and just brutally attacks this poor kid, just, you know, bites him, stomps on him, all sorts of terrible things, um, and then leaves him for dead. So police are now saying, well, uh, you know, there's two kids have been killed in two months, but it's two different killers. They're obviously still convinced that Ron Moffat is guilty, even though he's behind bars. So this is getting a bit strange. And in December 1956, Ron is put on trial. The night of the murder, the night Little Wayne was killed, Ron was at a movie theater. And there's multiple witnesses who say, oh, yeah, he was there the whole time. Um, there's no way that, you know, he could have done this killing. And the Crown Prosecutor, which is kind of the Canadian equivalent of your, um, uh, the DA, says, well, you know, he has this whole theory that Ron slipped out of the theater, uh, stole a bike, went to the CNE, killed this kid, had a meal in a diner, and then went back to the theater. And, and nobody noticed that he was, like, sweaty or upset or freaked out, as most 14-year-old boys would be after killing a little kid with their bare hands. Sounds like a master criminal, like... Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, Ron couldn't even ride a bike. He had hearing damage, and he had balance problems, and he couldn't ride a bike. 
And that was their theory. So the only evidence really against Ron was uh, they had bite mark evidence, which they, they said, well, little Wayne was, you know, somebody bit Wayne and that totally matches Ron's teeth. And they have this confession. Oh, well, he confessed to the crime. And at the time, no one could figure out why would anyone confess to a crime they didn't do. So Ron is convicted. Month later, a third kid is killed in Toronto. Little girl uh, named Carol Voice is approached. She's taken into the Don Valley, which is sort of a, at the time, this undeveloped uh, area in the middle of the city. And just again, brutalized, just just it was one of the worst of the killings. I mean, well, any killing of a child is terrible, but I mean, this one was especially brutal. So police finally clue in that there's a serial killer loose, the serial killer is targeting children, and the serial killer is almost certainly not Ron Moffat, who's sitting in jail or in custody. So they do this, um, you know, they launch this long, big manhunt, and finally they manage to get the real killer, who's this kid named Peter Woodcock. He's a little older than Ron, and he's been kind of a misfit all his life. He was given up for adoption by his parents. His mom might have been a prostitute. He had physical and mental problems, didn't fit in with his peers. He was bullied much of his youth. And he had, from a very young age, shown very strange behaviors, like he was obsessed with streetcars, um, had no interest in sort of being friends with the kids his own age. Uh, he was suspected of killing his, his own mother's um, pet bird and then putting candles around the body. Uh, he was adopted. He was not adopted, but he was um, taken in by a fairly wealthy foster family. So he was raised, being raised in comfort. And when Peter Woodcock was around 1516, he decided to start molesting kids. And he'd drive around, bike around the city on this nice little bicycle and engage kids in conversation, get their confidence, and then take them to a secluded spot and sexually assault them. And he just decided he sort of turned to murder eventually and killed three kids. He confesses, and um, all the evidence really pointed to Peter Woodcock. So, I mean, it was pretty clear. There were a number of witnesses who actually seen him approach um, in, like, you know, other kids and this sort of thing. So Peter Woodcock is put on trial in April of... 1957, and here's the interesting thing. Um, Peter Woodcock is found not guilty, but by reason of insanity. Okay. And at that time, that meant something a little different than it means today, because that meant that they would hold him in a psychiatric unit till they decided he was, quote, cured, and then let him go. So it was kind of the same thing as incarceration. Um, Ron, meanwhile, gets a second trial because he's got a lawyer named Patrick Hart who files an appeal. Peter Woodcock testifies at this trial saying, oh, yeah, I killed Wayne. Um, and Ron Moffat is acquitted. The judge, however, takes the time to say, well, you know, it's, you've got yourself to blame for this because you lied to police. So I'll acquit you, but I'm going to give you a little lecture before you go. And Ron um, walks out of the courtroom his parents are just working class people. They can't afford a lawsuit. And so Ron has never received any compensation or even official, even an official apology um, for his time in custody. Still to this day? Yep. Still to this day. 
um, it would be difficult to launch any kind of lawsuit now because a lot of the players involved are dead because so much time has gone by. And um, it would be unclear as to who he would sue. And authorities would probably say, well, the system screwed up, but it did eventually work because, hey, we acquitted you. So stop complaining. Um, so, so even today, he hasn't received any official apology or compensation. Why exactly were they so set on him? Um, it was a combination of things, tunnel vision and lack of experience. That is something I really try to underline in my book, that, as I said, 1956, Toronto has nine recorded murders, and police just didn't have a lot of experience dealing with murder. Then you've got this sensational killing, like this little boy is killed, so the police are under a huge amount of pressure to solve this case quickly. They get a suspect who they think sounds, you know, quote-unquote, good for it, Ron Moffat, because he's roughly the same age as the suspect seen by the security guard at, at the Canadian National Exhibition. He worked at the Canadian National Exhibition, and he runs away from home shortly after little Wayne Millette is killed. So the cops, in their mind, they think... Yeah, you know, he's he's our guy. And at the time, police were a lot less sophisticated. This is the 1950s. So most cops, you know, didn't have graduate degrees in, you know, psychology. They relied, you know, just on their gut instinct. And they kind of developed tunnel vision very quickly and decided, no, no, you know, we've got the right guy. And... uh We'll just, you know, ask him a few questions, and hey, he confessed. So there you go. And if you actually read the confession document, uh, they're asking him some, you know, super leading questions. You know, uh, is, is is that when you move the body? You know, this sort of thing. And he'd respond, and he sort of would pick up on what they were saying, tell them what they wanted, just so they got out of his face, basically. So it was big. It was just a massive fumble on police part, the police's part, and the tragedy is that two more children had to die uh, before things got rectified. In his confession and, and mm -hmm. afterwards, um, what does he say about that? Like, like, why exactly did he confess? Yeah, Ron said, uh, you know, he felt very intimidated. He thought that they were going to, you know, might beat him up. And, um, uh, you know, it's... It, People forget police interrogation is just a very unpleasant thing, and a lot of suspects sometimes just confess just to get it over with. I interviewed a um, um, I interviewed a uh, Osgood Hall law professor, Alan Young, and he points out that um, you know it's quite common for um, uh, wrongful convictions to go ahead because of a false confession. Yeah, there's a University of Michigan law professor, Samuel Gross, and he did a study, and he found that the rate of false confessions skyrockets when the suspect is a juvenile, mentally handicapped, or both. Um, suspects under 18 are more gullible, less mature, and they're very vulnerable to interrogation pressures. Uh, especially like if they're being interrogated, you know, game, no lawyer, no guardian, uh, no one there to say, to tell Ron, hey, you know, uh, you're in a lot of trouble if you confess to this. Uh, Professor Gross examined 
873 exonerations, which took place between January 1989 and February 2012 in the U.S. Of these, 135 involved a false confession. And he later analyzed um, uh, wrongful convictions that have been cleared through DNA and found you know, similar statistics that people have confessed to stuff that science says they didn't do. There's a number of different techniques police use. They're, nowadays, they call it the Reed technique. It's a bit notorious for um, police interrogations. It's based on an assumption of guilt. And Ron, you know, himself made an interesting point. He said, you know, look, you know, like you really don't know what it's like to be sort of bullied by these two big burly cops, you know, and you're 14 and you're in that room and by the end of it, you'll confess to anything. Um, so I think that was the long and short of it that I went into this book knowing, you know, that false confessions sometimes occurred, but I had no idea that it was as common as it is. And especially we're talking about an era where um, interrogations were not tape recorded or videotaped. Videotape didn't really exist. So we kind of just have to take the police's word for everything. And that creates its own set of problems. How was the fallout? Like, what was what was it like for him and his family afterwards? Well, immediately after he was acquitted, there's, you know, all sorts of press hullabaloo uh, and um he was never named in any stories, but they talked about, you know, this, his family being delighted to see him. His family pretty much went broke paying for his defense. Ron didn't adjust very well. He didn't go back to school. He sort of fell in with some miscreants. Uh, they committed a few burglaries. He got caught and put on probation. He straightened himself out, but then sort of got into, um, he had psychological issues, which is kind of understandable. So he spent a lot of time in, in darkness, um, alcoholism. He was in psychiatric facilities. He did manage, you know, he would alternate between darkness and pulling himself together. He got married um, in the early 60s, had three kids. Eventually they got divorced and then he got married again in 1980 and finally pulls his life together. He um, ends up in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario works as a caretaker at schools and has a happy sec happy second marriage, you know, kids, grandkids, um, steady job, does cartoons for a local paper, very happy family life. And apparently though, he never really talked about his experience until uh, he, you know, started doing the book with me because this had been so searing for him, obviously, uh, that he kind of kept it bottled up. But I really admire him because he managed to pull himself together um, after obviously going through a bit of a spiral uh, following his um, release from custody. So now when people buy and read the book, what do you want them to get out of it? Well, I want them to get out a few things. Uh, first of all, that this happened, um, this wrongful conviction story happened in Toronto, which is um, right now it's the biggest city in Canada, then it was the second biggest so often we think of wrongful convictions and you think of some shady small town police force with some redneck hicks who are like, hey, we're going to frame you, son. But this happened, you know, in a major city with, you know, supposedly professional police force. And um, it also is, sort of demonstrates how easy it is to get 
you know, sucked into this kind of system when police set your sights on uh, on you. Um, I guess the other thing I wanted to get people to get out of it is just sort of uh, the the whole issue of interrogating juveniles. That even today in Canada, it is not mandatory for a lawyer or parent to be present when um, an underage suspect is interrogated by police. And I'm of the view that it should be mandatory. Um, Juveniles have the right to ask for a lawyer or a parent, just like an adult. But a lot of the times they're too, you know, naive or cocky that, you know, most 15 year olds who are being interrogated and it's like, hey, do you want your mom here? And I think most of us say, no way, you know, get lost. And they don't realize that it would be a really good idea to have an adult in the room who could sort of help them. Um, so, yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a sort of hobby horse of mine or sort of thing that I think that uh, they should have better represent, better legal representation for uh, juveniles who are being interrogated, uh, well, anywhere in North America. But, I mean, I live in Canada, so that's my main focus. They do that differently in the U.K., don't they? They have to have an appropriate adult with them. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure of the UK, to be perfectly honest. Um, I do know some US states have started to do reforms in this area. California did something like that. Um, And I can't remember the exact details, but it's something like uh, if you're 15, you can automatically get access to a lawyer or something. Basically, they were responding to the same sort of concerns I had, which is that underage suspects are particularly vulnerable. And when I say interrogation, I should point out, I mean an official like sitting in the police station being, you know, hammered with questions. I'm not talking about cops coming up to some kid on the street who threw a brick through a window and then they're saying, hey, what happened? You know, that's kind of a different thing. Um, But yeah, there are some uh, jurisdictions that have recognized this issue and uh, I think it would be a very good idea to provide a little more protections for um, suspects under 18. Yeah, I think that making a murderer um, brought it to a lot of people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. their attention, right? The idea of, of Brandon Dassey being 14 and That's right. 15, whatever he was, and, and, and the interview and stuff like that. So I think a lot of people think about that. Yeah, there's also, I mean, at that age, you still have this sort of deference to authority, too, you know that, you know, you're 14, you're still in high school, you've, you know, it's sort of like yes, teacher, no teacher. And I think a lot of kids would probably have a similar attitude with the police. You know, hey, there's this authority figure talking to me. I'd better, you know, do what they want. Well, and it's, it's a pretty interesting subject. Um, so do you think it's getting better or, or, or worse? Um, I can only speak... Uh, from my limited experience, I think the issue is getting highlighted. I don't know whether there's any legislation uh, that's going to immediately change things, but it's at least become an issue. Whereas in, like certainly in the 50s, 1950s in Canada, it wouldn't have even been an issue. Okay, he's, you know, 15, go ahead and interrogate him, no big deal. So uh, it's at least being talked about now. Whether that produces any results, I don't know. And as you said, that podcast, like Making of a Murderer, I think really opened a lot of people's eyes. 
because a lot of people aren't even aware that um, you know police can do this and interrogate 14-year-old suspects without a lawyer. Yeah, kind of old laws, you know, that have stayed with us. I think that's more than any of it. I mean, mm -hmm. when we were in school, we used to get the belt, right? And <laughs> <laughs> they don't do that now. No. Um, so, what? Some of your other books, like you just recently released another one as well, or Big Con? Yeah, the, the Big Con. That was a pretty interesting looking book. Yeah, um, yeah. Great that... hoaxes, frauds. Um, yep. What was that about? Well, uh, the title kind of sums it up. Uh, great ho Big Con, Great Hoaxes, Frauds, Grifts, and Swindles in American History. That was one of my American books uh, for the company ABC Clio. And it's just basically a big collection of different scams, historic and modern, um, the origins of certain scams, um, and how to avoid being scammed. That's another thing that... This is not a book. Uh, this is <laughs> this is not a how-to book for uh, you know future con artists or anything like that. I oh. you know have plenty of warning. Yeah, sorry if anyone's listening. You're really disappointed. How did you choose what would be in the book? Like what kind of mm -hmm. scam did you choose, and and why why would you choose them? Sure, sure. A lot of it is either financial fraud or some kind of like romance fraud. Those are kind of the two areas um, I really focused on. Uh, the other thing is obviously it had to be all American. Um, the publishers are very strict about that. So there were a couple things I couldn't cover. There's some great Canadian scams, like the Brie X mining company that was, you know, full of crap. And uh, I wasn't able to talk about them. I tried to keep a little bit of a sense of humor that there are a couple scammers and scams that I mentioned that in, did involve, you know, murder and some not nice things, but I tried to, I wouldn't say, I, I wouldn't say I tried to keep it light, but I tried to keep it uh, not too, too dark, I guess you could say, that some of it is actually kind of amusing uh, as long as you don't fall for these scams. And I also tried to inject a level of psychology as to how these guys get away with it and how people fall for these scams. I'm still surprised today that people send money and get involved in these things uh, over the Internet now instead of the phone. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, well, a lot of that is basically based on sound um, mainstream business principles that it's like the door-to-door -door salesman. If you knock on enough doors, eventually someone will respond. So when you get this ridiculous spam email uh, promising millions of dollars for doing nothing, you know, 99.99% of people are going to just delete it and just ignore it. But that tiny little fraction of people, like that's all the scammer needs because they're not putting a lot of money or effort into this scam, right? So all they need is a handful of really gullible people, and you would be amazed that uh, um, they keep doing these things. And some of the, you know, some of the scams, like if you if you receive an email that says, you know, give me all your money now, I think most people would say, okay, that's a scam. But some of this stuff is fairly clever, and you know, your average person might not be able to recognize what the scam is. I'll just give you one little example. Very common romance fraud where, you know, the fraudster hooks 
a lovesick person and, you know, sends them, oh, I love you so much, and you're all, I love you too, you're so wonderful. And then the froster starts saying, uh, well, you know, I live in, you know, Paraguay and would love to visit you, but, uh, you know, I'm running into these problems with my business, and they, you know, start complaining about business, and then it becomes this complicated thing, and they're like, well, how about um, I will send you a check, because for whatever reason, you know, they can't do this themselves. I'll send you a check. You can keep 10% of it. What I want you to do is take it to the bank and deposit it in your account and then wire me, you know, the balance, the 90%. You keep the 10% and that'll give me enough money to come visit you. And the person takes the check to the bank all excited and what happens is it's deposited, the money is wire transferred, and then a day later, the check bounces. It takes, you know, usually 24 hours or so for them to, you know, catch up to any kind of deposit. And you are responsible for the balance. And what happens is these scammers always ask you to wire transfer their money. And they're one of these, you know, um, wire transfer companies because it becomes very difficult to get your money back once you do that. You know, you're going to be out a large amount of money. And uh, it is a fairly clever scam because a lot of people wouldn't be able to see the nuances of that. They wouldn't be able to, you know, okay, well, this guy's sending me a check. You know, how what could possibly go wrong? Um, they think that they're getting free money out of this, and they don't, you know, realize the ramifications of what they're doing. Well, I, you know, I'll come visit you in Toronto if you send me a check. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be so wonderful. Um, yeah. Why don't I even? I could send you a blank check. That would be even better. You Please. fill in the amount, and yeah. uh, all would be great. There you go. We got it made. Got it made. Well, that you know, in uh, in Canada, that um, uh, scam that was been going on the last couple of years over the phone of the revenue service calling. Yes, them. yes. That's done well. I think they've uh, they've they they keep doing it, so there must be some income on it. Yeah, yeah, I get that all the time. These people phone and say, uh, this is Revenue Canada, which is the equivalent of the IRS um, here up in, up in Canada. Uh, we have a warrant for your arrest because you owe us ten grand, and we want you to pay immediately in Bitcoin, usually some bizarre, you know. And if you don't do this, uh, we'll send the you know thugs out uh, to get you. Um, so my response, because I have a... Um, Speakerphone. So one time, uh, I just picked up my mandolin and started singing, and that sort of, you know, I said, "Just a minute, I got to sing," and that distracted them. Uh, another time, I just got fed up and I said, "Look, I'm a crime writer, and Revenue Canada does not have power of arrest, you know, so go to hell." And they hung up. Uh, but yeah, enough people fall for it, and um, will actually are convinced that you know they're going to go to jail unless they pay this thousands of dollars in Bitcoin to some yeah. outfit, you know, wherever. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that one is very common. That's pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so it's just kind of endless. Wow. So now, now let's talk. Do you have a website or a place that people can go, go and find you? Or yes, I do. And hide okay. What that uh, be? So it's com, which is just N A T E. H-E-N-D-L-E-Y dot com. All my books are there, or uh, most of them, and um, I talk, you know, there's info on my 
background and all sorts of exciting things. And um, I also have a blog on the website uh, that you can follow my, you know, exciting adventures and, you know, readings and that sort of thing. Uh, so I would advise people to go there if they're interested in my work. Fantastic. Well, we'll have that on our website as well, and we'll have your book up there, The Boy on the Bicycle. Excellent. Kind of the thing we talked about. Um, our guest has been the author, um, Nate Henley. Thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, I really enjoy talking about uh, talking about my books and just talking about, <laughs> uh, you know, these cases in general um, because there's just a fascination, I think. People have a fascination with crime, and they also have a fascination with justice, which is, I think, both things came together in my Boy in the Bicycle book because Ron eventually did get acquitted, and his uh, horrible case did have some resolution. So I was pleased to be able to write about that. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! How dare you? If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media.